0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachib, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Everyone has childhood wounds, no matter your family dynamic or upbringing. The key is to work through those past traumas before they become an obstacle in your present life. But where should you start? Today, Vienna Farron is here to help us identify and heal those deep cuts. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and one of New York City's most sought-after relationship therapists. Her book, The Origins of You, is a national bestseller, and she's full of advice on how to work through the emotional trauma we don't even know exists. Plus, she tells us the most common relationship killers and how to know if you're ready for a serious relationship. It's a good one you don't want to miss. You say our childhood wounds are playing out right now, no matter how fantastic, how average, or in some cases how terrible our childhood was. Can we talk more about that
1: yeah and and maybe not right now and in every moment, but certainly in the unwanted patterns that we can't shake and change and shift in our lives today. And I think most people can probably raise their hands and say, yep, there are some unwanted patterns that I notice that no matter how much I commit to it, no matter how much I promise myself that I'm not going to do that thing again. I'm not going to keep pursuing emotionally unavailable people. I promise I'm never going to engage in this conflict in this way ever again because I don't like who I am when I do it or I'm going to set this boundary, you know, with my partner's parents or whatever it is, but we cannot do it, right? It's like that to me is where there's an arrow that points to irresolution from the past. When we can make changes, fantastic, right? If you're like, I can change this thing about myself and I implement it and you do, great. But when you find yourself back in that thing over and over and over again, that's where we want to really... Inquire deeply uh, and see what is unresolved from our past that's calling for our attention.
0: So you mentioned pursuing emotionally unavailable people. Is that a fairly common one?
1: It can be. Yes.
0: What what's what's the driver for that specifically?
1: Oh, it could be a number of different things. Um, it's not so much about being attracted to someone who is emotionally unavailable. It's about the pursuit, and I remember when I distinguished this uh, in, maybe it was an Instagram reel or something, and I remember how many people were like, wow, that actually shifts and reframes it for me, because this idea, we, are, we could be attracted to lots of people for lots of different things, but it's this pursuit of, I know that you are not available to me, and I'm going to see if I can, what, convince you otherwise, I'm going to see if I am good enough for this to for it to change your mind right and so a lot of times there's um sort of a worthiness wound that can play into the pursuit of going after someone who's unavailable um this idea you know I, a lot of people will say, well if you go after somebody who's unavailable, it means that you're unavailable, and that can be true. <laughs> It, it, it certainly can be the case, but some... That was me 25 years ago. <laughs> right, right. It's like definitely a valid point, um, but it can also be us feeling like we are you know, undeserving of something, that that's a part of the narrative that is just underlying it always. And what we know is that if I'm going to pursue this person, I am going to continue to feel that way because I'm not going to be able to convince them otherwise. I know that they're disconnected from self or relationship and they don't want anything, but I'm going to go after someone who's not available and it's going to keep this narrative steady for me. And so there can be this worthiness element that that plays in that we keep uh yeah we sort of keep uh repeating um I think sometimes we can experience this space where it's like if you just get to know me then i'm going to be able to convince you otherwise right and so sometimes people will will enter into that space hoping that with some time and if we yeah if we spend more time together and you get to see how great i am i'm going to be able to change your mind right and so there's always this changing of the mind element piece to it that can present and i think it's looking at like well Who have you always wanted to change, right? Like where where have you looked to before? What's familiar about this where you're like wanting somebody's opinion or experience of you or the way that they relate to you to be different? And maybe we might find some of that in childhood, for example. Maybe we have a relationship with a parent or a sibling or another adult in our lives where they're disconnected from us. We can't get the attention that we want from them. We can't get the connection that we want from them. We can't get their validation or you know intimacy from them in the way that we seek and yeah whether they're prioritizing other things they're busy they're just checked out for whatever reason but we're constantly in this loop trying to be the star athlete or get the straight a's or be quote-unquote perfect so that we get the thing that we want from them and do we continue to chase that you know in our adult lives and you know romantic relationships or even friendships sometimes
0: there's a lot to unpack there I think about performance culture. You mentioned the straight A's, the uh, the star athlete. I think of Dr. Lisa Miller's work around children in high-earning, very well-educated cities where there are studies to show that these kids in households where parents have significant resources, kids go to the best schools, are more likely to have anxiety or be depressed than kids who are in extreme, like that one's to say poverty, but like who, who are far from well off where maybe parents are having difficult, like those kids are happier. And to me, that's a, a big, wow. On one hand, you have parents who are very involved, educated resources, producing children that are unhappy. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you've got kids on the other side, you know, the wrong side of the tracks, if you will, Uh, Who don't have those resources, who don't have the education, and those kids are happier than these kids. And a lot of it's how the parents interact and the expectations instead of how, you know, how are you feeling? It's how do you do on that math test?
1: Right. How are you? Yeah. What are you doing? right? How are you performing? And yeah, right. That like the level of stress and pressure, which, you know, tends to move kids out of, being kids and you know getting to be playful and you know getting to exist in a low pressure space and that doesn't mean that they don't have wonderful outcomes of being smart, hardworking individuals, right? But this idea that the thing that is most important to me as your parent is how you do in the world as opposed to who you are. Right. And it's not to say that the parents on the other side of the tracks, as you put it, are necessarily inquiring about that. But I think that that's so important. Like, who are you and how are you? Right. Versus, what are you doing essentially to make me happy? less ashamed, less embarrassed, right? Because if you as child is a reflection of me, is an extension of me, holds some type of image of me, right? To my friends, to my other family members, to society, to the world around me, right? If that's the thing that's most important is protecting the parent's image, then we understand how disconnected they're going to be from their children and their, their, their child's internal experience. I think for a child then, because performance is often tied to, you know, what I call worthiness wound, this idea that I am only worthy, right, of ah, attachment, connection, love, validation, affirmation, your presence, peace in our family, right, if I am performing in the way that you need me to. I get those things when I'm doing that. I don't get those things, love, connection, intimacy, et cetera, right? When I'm not doing those things, right? And so when we are in this performance space where we learn that the only way to get the things that we crave and desire and need as kiddos is to perform in the way that the adults in our lives require us to, right? We can see how easy it might be to either repeat that pattern or sometimes we take a path of opposition where we're like, screw it. I don't want to have anything to do with this because I can't stand this. And then maybe we're a little bit, um, you know, defiant in the other direction. But it's a, yeah, it's a, kids need to know that they're worthy just by being.
0: I want to come back to kids. We'll park that and come back. Because I want to make sure we spend some time on, in my view, like the foundation of of your book, which is excellent, these, these, these core wounds. So c- can you walk us through the five core wounds, what they are, how they show up, and ultimately how we can kind of start to do the work to move through them?
1: Yeah. So when I sat down to write The Origins of You, I was jotting down like all the different wounds that I thought that every human could possibly have. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I felt felt that these five and, and the, the words that I chose, right, the language that I chose really encompassed the human experience. Don't think that we fit into boxes. If a different word works for you as a listener, beautiful. Go with that. Um, but the five that really stood out to me were worthiness, belonging, prioritization, safety, and trust, meaning that through our lives, in our experience, right, we tend to have ruptures in our sense of worthiness, in a sense of belonging, being a part of something, in our sense of feeling like a priority, in our sense of being able to trust the important people around us and the world around us, um, sometimes even being able to trust ourselves. And then, of course, safety, right? Am I safe? Am I secure? Um, Is my well-being? Being looked after, right? Am I taking care of here? And yeah, the ruptures in that are things that we tend to find um happen in family of origin, right? In the family systems that we grow up in. It doesn't all happen there. Um, in me kind of going through this, I want to name how many people are like, I think I have all five. <laughs> so if you're like resonating with many of these right now, that's okay. That's normal. Um But yeah, sometimes a primary one is going to stand out where you're like, wow, I really do struggle with this.
0: I think at one time in our lives, we've probably experienced all of these things. I think that the question becomes is what what shows up all the time? (laughs) Like what's the consistent theme versus, you know, one time I wasn't really feeling worthy or I couldn't find my tribe.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. And this isn't about just sort of like a light scrape right? This is about something that's internalized for us. Because we, all of us have, you know, we can go through hard things and not every hard thing that we go through is going to stick with us and, and change the trajectory of our lives, right? Sometimes though, hard things, right? And ruptures do do that. And that's what's important for us to understand is like, what in my story What in my experience? Things that have either happened to me or things that I have observed because not everything happens to us that impacts us, right? Sometimes it's something that we see in our parents' relationship or something that happened to our sibling that has a deep impact on us that we're looking out for as well right? And so that's our job, is to understand where there's a significant rupture in these things. We don't have to make something out of nothing, but we do have to name and acknowledge where there is unresolved pain in our lives.
0: So of those five... Which do you believe is the most common?
1: Worthiness, for sure. I mean, when I was writing about worthiness, I'm like, I am pretty sure every human on the planet probably rubs up against a worthiness wound at some point or another. Again, to what degree is it something that holds, you know, the the reins in their lives? Okay, that's, we can argue, right? But it's like, I think I, I've done a... I created a, not that this isn't scientific, right, but I created a a quiz, what's your primary origin wound? And and I think, you know, over 70% of people came back with the worthiness wound, right? So we know that
0: that's one that is so common. Absolutely need to link to that in the show notes so everyone listening can take the quiz. What within the family system promote unworthiness? Give us some examples.
1: Yeah, so okay, so one of the things that we started with already, right, is this need for performance. So the pleasers, the perfectionists, the performers out there, right, hands up, those are a lot of the people who are going to struggle with a worthiness wound. And it's what I was saying before, right? This idea that my line for connection, closeness, intimacy, attachment, validation, affirmation, peace, et cetera, right, is tied to my ability to perform, It's tied to my ability to please you. It's tied to my ability to present in whatever way you need me to in order to get the outcome that I'm looking for. So a lot of times we're going to see a worthiness wound develop because of that in the environment. We can see a worthiness wound develop because of statements of harm. And of course, that's also tied to safety because we might be talking about abuse if we're talking about statements of harm. But sometimes, unfortunately, we grow up in a family where we're told that we're worthless, that we're told that we're not good, that we're told that we're not deserving of anything. And that might feel extreme for some people, but it's absolutely valid that, you know, so many of us have heard heard those words or a version of them before that strips it away from us, right? That strips our worth and our value as a human being down. I, a quick story, one of the things that you know stru- ruptured a little bit of worthiness for me in conflict with my father, the way that he would punish me was um, by giving me the silent treatment, and what would happen is when I was a quote unquote good girl, he was super helpful super present super available, really like happy to do anything for me but when I stepped out of that, and you know when I say that it was really within reason i was a uh objectively you know good kid, but when I was whatever, defiant in some way or I didn't agree with him or, you know, wasn't, you know, able to be, he couldn't control me in a particular moment. The way that I was punished was through silent treatment for sometimes, you know, days and weeks even on end. And it was one of those things where I learned, right? Like my worth, like if I stay quiet, If I am agreeable, if I am fine, if I don't push back on things, if I don't have boundaries, right, then I get connection and closeness and support and help. But when I'm not doing those things, if I have a boundary, if I have a thought that is different than yours and you don't like it, right? Then I'm going to be punished and all of that's going to be withheld from me. Right? So that's another example, right? It's like, ooh, I am worthy of closeness and connection and support and help when I fit in this box. But when I don't fit in this box, then it gets taken and withheld, withdrawn.
0: So anecdotally, I definitely know some people who have similar stories, and ha- have done the work and kind of recognize this, well, former blind spot. And then there are some people I know who are extraordinarily performance driven, have expectations for themselves that are beyond, you know ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but they're just kind of hardwired that way. They're extraordinarily competitive like there was there, there was as far as I know, nothing traumatic in that sense in their childhood they were just kind of born hardwired very competitive very hard on themselves like expect excellence and that's just kind of who they who they are uh is that possible in your view
1: yeah i mean i think i i love excellence too and i love to compete as well and i think um you know there's a quote that a colleague of mine Says, which is that our gifts and our pain and wounds are oftentimes next door neighbors. And, you know, the way that we learn to survive something often is in this really glistening and glimmering way. And I think sometimes this idea, and, you know, can we be born competitive? Like, sure, we could certainly make an argument for that. And, you know, obviously nature versus nurture, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it, it's important for us, I think, to inquire, right? Is like, If that's not there, who am I? Hmm. If I'm not pushing myself, right? Like, who am I without it? Is there something there or is there nothing there?
0: So if unworthy, that that makes sense. And I'm curious, if unworthiness is the one that's the most common, what's the, the most problematic?
1: Yeah, I don't know that you can rank that because i think the way that it's internalized and takes over any individual's life is is infinite Right. And it's and I think what I and it's something that I call in the book, I call it wound comparison. I think sometimes when we hierarchically are putting something like which one is the worst and who has it the worst, to me, that becomes a distraction actually away from our own experience. We can look at so many people's lives and objectively say, Holy smokes, that person has been through it. That is a story. Right. But If that then means my story is not as bad as your story, then what happens is it moves me away from honoring and acknowledging the way that my experience has taken up space and
0: room in my life. So if we take out the outliers, if you will, the people who've had extreme trauma, which you would hear a story and you would just wince like painful we take the outliers out and we go back to like maybe the the middle where every living human being has experienced this the average in your view what separates the average from having issues that become obstacles in their ability to thrive as happy healthy human beings and those who have the same issues, and they're all good.
1: I think to me, it's about the resolution, right? For most of us, and there might be some people listening who are like, I really had a great go. And there's nothing really that stands out. And certainly there are cases where it is possible to have fantastic parents and, you know, to not have, you know, significant ruptures in your life. So we can put those people aside. But I think the the difference maker is those of us who are willing to look versus those of us who are not. And I think that's what I'm, you know, what I was saying at the beginning is, yeah, if you have unwanted patterns, right, if you're like, oh, this thing that I keep doing or I keep finding myself in, to me, that lets me know that we haven't resolved what needs to be resolved, does not mean that our past has to dictate our lives forever right it's that when most when when we are willing to acknowledge our pain when we are willing to actually spend a little bit of time with our story, we don't have to hang out there forever, right? We don't have to go into the past and keep, right. But it's like if we're willing to acknowledge and honor the story, then it loosens its grip on us. I always think that pain's not out to destroy our lives. It's not out to get us. It's not cynically rubbing its hands together saying "Ha ha ha!" Let's see where I can destroy your life, right? It's like it's it wants to have us turn back around to it, right? Because this idea that like, when we're kids, when we're teenagers, we don't have great tools. We survive our way through stuff. We cope through whatever it is that's happening around us, right? We get to the other side. Congratulations. We've survived it, right? But then this idea of like, oh, I'm going to go back there. We don't tend to do that. And yet, We still had the experience. It still imprinted something upon us, right? And what I would say is that it might be dictating or directing parts of our lives, the way that we communicate, the way that we navigate through conflict, the ways that we do or do not set boundaries, sometimes having too high of boundaries and not allowing people to get close to us or get connected to us, right? And those are the things that we have to look at. So the difference, right, between the average, the middle folks, right, who all went through similar-ish stuff, it all kind of gets internalized in different ways, but some people are doing better than others, is that we're looking and naming and addressing and and touching the stuff from our past that has a grip on us.
0: You know, where I go with this, I agree with what you said, is also mindset. In my view, there's a big difference between saying, I think there's a process, at least with me, there's a process where sometimes I will say, you know, why did this happen to me? But then I will quickly segue to what can I learn from this versus some people just get stuck in, why did this happen to me? And then that becomes your story. And we all have our stories. Everyone's got their story. The reality, I I think the, the, the real skill, and it's a lifelong journey for myself. And I think many listeners is like, Trying to create space sometimes from you and your journey, and or you and your story, so to speak, and and be self aware, and sometimes that's difficult to do.
1: Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think that curiosity is such an important tool, and when we stay stuck in, yeah, whether it's a version of why did this happen to me, or I can't believe this happened to me, or I'm so unlucky, um, when we get trapped in in a victim position. And what I mean by that is not that we cannot be victims. Of course, there are things that do happen to us. We are victims of many things. But when we get stuck there, it's so hard to heal from that place. Right. If we're clinging to a story, right? If we are holding on to it, if we I we o- almost over identify with the story, right? Then it's very hard to make any type of movement, right? So when you're talking about mindset, absolutely, right? It's like there's got to be a space where we can inquire and get really curious about what can grow from this.
0: So to to segue off of this, I'll provide something at least I, I find humorous. One of my favorite shows on television was Justified with the great actor Timothy Elephant, and there was a fantastic line, which I've used before on this show. He says... If you run into an asshole in the morning, you run into an asshole. If you run into assholes all day, you're the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that kind of says it all. So something else I thought was was really interesting. Birth order. What do we need to know about birth order? And I, I know we're, you know, there's some generalizations to be made, but you know, are there commonalities for the oldest, youngest, middle? only only child uh what can you tell us about birth order as i think about my two children and how their personalities are so different and i'm sure there anyone listening who has a sibling or has children is thinking of the same thing
1: and uh, what about you where where are you in the are you an only child or you have siblings
0: i'm all yeah raised only yeah
1: yeah okay so i'm an only child too um and it's a very unique Uh, there's not as many of us, I guess. I don't mean as many uh, only children. Uh, Unique experience at times. There are definitely commonalities that we can see. I'm a parent as well. Um, And so I, I even think about like, oh my gosh, the first time becoming a parent and how you do things and how you relate to your child and what you know how to do and what you don't know how to do and how careful you might be versus, you know, another one coming in. You're like, I've been there, done that. And like, where are we focusing? I remember someone saying like, I, have like 7000 photos of my first child and like three of my third. <laughs> you know and you're like right you sort of forget oh look this is the novelty of this and 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 what's going on here and I what I maybe will point to is that I find it fascinating to understand what's happening in parents' lives based on when that child is entering and so yeah we could sit here and say okay the, does the first one have it hardest they're having to like crack through all the things and you know is the middle one the forgotten one because we care about the first one and then the baby but the middle one is just kind of lost in the mix right like we we could chat all about that but i i I think there's something really fascinating and interesting about what is happening in the lives of the parents based on when children are entering and children are moving through important moments in their lives. Because what we know for certain is like, sure, you know, we both had the same parents, right? We all had the same parents. And yet we all have, or I I shouldn't say this all of the time, but so many people I talk to is that we have very different experiences of these same adults, right? I have a very different take on my parents than my sibling does. The way that my sibling would tell a story about my parents is very different the way that I would tell a story about them. And that piece to me is so interesting and fascinating because it shapes so much of the way that children internalize uh, their experiences, how much they're cared for, how much a parent or parents prioritize them, um, what the focus is. You know, maybe if you had a young parent uh, as the first child, but then the third or fourth child has a more mature, emotionally mature, evolved parent because it's been 10 years time, right? It's like they're getting totally different experiences. I think for parents listening, one of the questions that I often ask people is to think about your child, however old they are, but let's say that their kiddo is smaller right now. Um, and so like 15, 20 years from now on their therapist's couch. And when the therapist asks them, tell me about your parents, right? What like what was it like for you growing up? Um, what's the good, the the bad, the not so good? You know, what are they going to say about you what right like what is the story that they carry and hold about their experience with you as their parent and if you like that answer great but if that answer is really confronting for you right it's like to me that's a very interesting inquiry
0: i like that cuz it kind of zooms out to the big picture and for me personally as a parent sometimes When we start to talk about trauma and parenting, I I Mm -hmm. will sit here and say, oh God, I did that one really wrong. You know, lost my temper, you know, and it's just like, I think as parents, you can, you can be hard on yourselves, but I think the reality is most parents are doing the best they can and are pretty darn good. But I think when you start to talk about, you know, I I think the world, and and this is overall positive thing. I think a decade ago we talked about trauma and it was just big T. Now we all know there's little T and little T's everywhere, but like you can't escape it. And I I just want to be clear to parents listening. Like none of us are perfect. (laughs) Like as long as you're, as long as you're trying, you love your kid, you do the basics, like you're doing fine. Cause I think with a lot of parents, you start to go down this rabbit hole and you're like, Oh God, I'm uh, doing terrible. What am I, you know,
1: (laughs) No, and that's, it's the zoom out, like you said, right? Because it's, it cannot be these micro moments. Of course, I'm the big believer, like, apologize, take accountability, take ownership, like that is one of the best things that you can do as a parent. But you have to zoom out and say, the experience, what's, what's the story, right? Because they're not going to talk to their therapist for, you know, 80 hours about how you were as a parent. They're going to give a paragraph. They're going to give a number of sentences about who you were, where you showed up, where you didn't. And that's, it's like that zoom out of overall. What's the takeaway? What will they say? And that's the piece because it's the repetition. That's why people say things, right? They're not going to be like, oh, this one moment when, you know, you promised me ice cream, but then we were late and we couldn't get ice cream. You know, like that's likely, I mean, maybe for somebody, but likely not going to be the standout moment and the tell all. So yes, you cannot zoom in on these micro
0: moments. I love this. And I want to close the loop on here with for our parents listening, you know, what are the big picture things we should focus on? Is one of them, if I'm hearing you correctly, like if you feel like you've, maybe lost your temper apologize just like sorry i lost my t- it's a big it's gonna happen at least for me it's gonna happen but i say you know what i'm i'm sorry like i'm really sorry i lost my cool i shouldn't have done that you know that's one thing i'm getting for you like what are other things like for parents to like focus on other than like you know loving your child like being being there Tell us what else.
1: Hopefully you love your child. Hopefully you want to be there. Hopefully you want to show up for them, right? Like let's let's have that as, as beneath the bar. But yeah, exactly what I said before about apologize, naming things, right? You, a lot of times what happens is shame or embarrassment or guilt comes in. And when we do that, most of us as humans, we like to get away from that, right? We don't love the feeling of shame and embarrassment. It sucks. It doesn't feel good for us. And so what happens is we hide. Right? And so this idea of h- holding ourselves up high enough right, to say, I can make a mistake. I can be human. I can be flawed. I can be imperfect. Right? I just had an imperfect moment. Of course I did. But that doesn't mean that I have to exist in my shame. Right? Because if I have to protect myself, it means that I can't honor your experience if i have to protect myself i can't honor your experience i can't name what just happened because right? i'm i'm safeguarding me and as parents you know as the adults in the relationship i think it's so important for us to be able to work to a place really get to that emotional maturity where i don't need to safeguard myself i need to honor what just happened so yes the apology the ownership the accountability is beautiful parents say like well, you know what should i be doing right it's like Your work is to continue to resolve that which is unresolved. I know I keep saying it here, but it's like the more that you do that, right, the more growth and expansion and healing that happens because we know that that your resolution from generation to generation does get passed down, right? And so it's like what you don't resolve, your children will have to face, right? What you don't resolve, your children will have to face.
0: On that note, what we don't resolve are partners and relationships are going to have to face. So, so let's go there. Like, what, what do you, i like, where, where should we start with relationships and, and our experience?
1: It's tricky, right? Because it's like, here's two people who are coming together who have Complexity to them, who have full stories right who have who grew up in family systems that may or may not have looked similar to one another, right? who have different storylines, who have maybe different wounds or maybe some of the same wounds, um, but ultimately right like when we 're in di- a relationship, when there 's an activation or a trigger or conflict or breakdown in communication what 's happening is me as the individual is trying to protect something for myself right and the same thing for the other side right and so when we go into that space where there's disconnect or rupture in relationships right, it's like each person is safeguarding in the way that they know how sometimes that's learned behavior sometimes it's adaptive right it's like how did i need to protect myself growing up how did i need to protect myself in past relationships how do i need to protect myself here And, you know, a lot of times it's this race to needing to be right or needing to prove our point or just needing to protect ourselves, right, instead of racing to repair or hear the other person. I'll share a quick story just because I think it help synthesize this. Before I was married, I was dating. Well, uh, spoiler alert, we did get married, so you'll know that this conflict didn't ruin everything. But we got into a conflict while we were dating, and I just kept doubling down, tripling down. I have no idea what what we were fighting about, but I remember myself like just needing to prove my point over and over and over again. And Connor's like, I got it. I understand. And I kept going, and I kept going, and I kept going. I had this out-of-body moment where I'm like, Vienna, stop talking. But I couldn't. I just kept And finally, it stopped. And I remember this sort of the shame spiral coming on. Like, like, this was not very attractive. And I I wonder if he's going to want to be with me anymore, yada, yada, yada. And then I replaced the shame with curiosity quickly. What does being right serve? What does proving my point serve? Serve, And I think this is a really important tool for anybody who's listening, right, is to ask what the behavior is serving. Because even though it might be dysfunctional or disconnected in the moment, our behaviors in context make sense. It's very important for us to remember, you make sense with context, your partner makes sense with context. We all make sense with context. Context is not an excuse, but it helps us make sense of things. And so our behaviors, our unwanted behaviors that were like, oh, I can't stand that I do this is protecting something. It's serving something. And your job is to understand and figure out what that is. And so when I inquired, like, why? Like, what what is this all about? It brought me back to my childhood. As you know already, I'm an only child. My parents went through a nine-year divorce process. Nine? Nine-year, the longest in the state of New Jersey at the time. Um, Talk about competitive. (laughs) And I watched a lot of manipulation, a lot of gaslighting, a lot of paranoia, a lot of psychological abuse. It was awful. And as a little human in this system, sort of observing, what I saw was, you know, dominance, power, and control came from my dad, who was very manipulative, was a master gaslighter. And my mom was in this weak position based on my perspective. She was confused. She was, couldn't track what was going on. And to me, there was a weakness there. It was very clear that safety wasn't being right. He was quick with his words. He could always make himself right. And not being right was unsafe. And that perspective was so informative to me because I could have compassion for myself instead of just criticism and blame for like, oh, this was so gross. I can't believe you behave this way. It's so unattractive. You can't show up in the world that way. To, oh, I wow, like, of course. Course, you want to be right and need to prove your point because it is connected to your safety based on your life experience. And now, of course, I can't just say I connected the dots and so here it is, right? Like, I cannot go around behaving that way for the rest of my life. There has to be a shift that takes place. But to understand what that behavior was serving offered a compassionate lens. I gave myself grace. And then it was this invitation to work with that part differently because, yeah, I I cannot do that in my partnership. It's not going to work out very well. It's not going to last if I keep doing that. But I also have to have compassion and understanding for this part of my story that developed this behavior to protect myself from something that did need protecting way back when.
0: Wow. So for a relationship to be successful there's a lot that goes into that and in my very unprofessional view i think it requires work and there needs to be growth but i also think in my oversimplification that like the biggest secret is picking the right person because if you pick the wrong person the amount of work required is possibly unsurmountable. (laughs) And that's so much of failed relationships comes down to like selection. What's your, I'm not the professional.
1: No, but I I think you're, you're right. Like there is so much to understand and unpack in individuals and in relationships and, and, you know, when you get together and you make a choice, you know, the closer, the more intimate, the more you understand about each other at that point. Right? I think to, to your point is like, yeah, it's going to be hard. There's always going to be work. There's going to be challenges. You're going to face a lot of things throughout your relationship together. Incredible stages of life, incredible moments of grief, right? But it's, right, it's like this idea, you know, the way that I described it I, I felt with my husband that I believed that we could face anything together. So
0: on that note, and again, my unprofessional over simplistic view, I believe, mm-hmm. I, and, I, and I've said this in years to, to friends, when there are like big problems in the early stages of relationships, when there's no mortgage, there's no kids, there's no illness, and like you're serious issues and like you're in therapy on week three my oversimplistic view has been like dude it's the wrong relationship like everything's okay right now to your point like life is going to be a lot more complicated and if you're having problems now like that's a that what what's your what's your take on my oversimplification and potentially bad advice to friends decades ago
1: (laughs) no not i mean not necessarily right like i think yeah like if if there is high conflict there's so there's so much that's just always an issue right right from the get go like likely that's going to continue right and i don't want to say all right because i think that there's people who have gone through hard stuff in the beginning of a relationship who have found their way through it right? but i think this idea it's like when we choose partnerships and and I mean, not just like dating people for a few dates
0: <laughs> yeah, there's that too
1: right um th- yeah, right, It's like when we have actually chosen a partnership, um my take is that we have similar levels of your resolution, we don't tend to choose people and partner with them. Again, not go on a few dates with them, but actually choose them and partner with them and have wildly different levels of your resolution. Now, your stories might be entirely different. Somebody objectively might have a story that is the, like, oof, the wincing, like you said before, and the other person might not have that story. But uh, levels of your resolution, why we choose each other, right, is we're still looking to resolve something there. And, if, and so, you know, to your point, right, is couples who are willing and interested and curious and open about that work of resolving things through the dynamic Right, are going to do a little bit better than people who are like, you just suck, right? Or this is all you, or I don't have anything, you've got it all, or whatever it is, right? It's like, or they're not interested in inquiring within or being self-reflective or they don't care about it at all or they're shut down from it. It's very hard to make any type of movement and growth and change from that place. And so this, I don't care how unresolved you are. I care how much you are open and interested interested in that work of resolution and knowing that so much of that comes through relationship. Our pain and our wounds, it's at the hands of relationships. So our healing a resolution is at the hands of relationships. There's only so much that we can do in the vacuum of the individual, right? It's like, our, we know relationships hold up mirrors. We know our partners do. We know our children do, right? It's like, that is where it's going to reflect the things back to us. And I think, you know, the couples who do the best are the ones who are open to the exploration of self-inquiry and relational inquiry. They're they're open. They are reflective. They are self- and relationally aware. And they can see their part and their partner can see their part. And we're interested and committed to continuing to resolve and face the things that confront confront us.
0: So if those who are curious and committed and have learned to become effective communicators it sounds like those are the most common traits in couples that end up staying together and and having healthy happy relationships it is is it as simple as those who do not display those common traits end up being the couples that get divorced or is there more to the the failed the, the failed the qualities that that end relationships
1: I mean, there's a lot, you know, that that can go into the ending of a relationship. But I do think what we're saying here in terms of, like, what allows people to get through hard things together, life is hard. And, you know, if it's not hard yet— and I don't mean this to be doom and gloom, but the reality of it is, is that we face loss and we face grief and we, fa- you know, we face massive transitions throughout life. And we're going to get there at some point if you haven't had to walk that bridge yet. And I think you know, attachment, when we think about it, parent-child, is being able to move through hard things together and know that we're going to get to the other side. It's the same relationally in partnership, right? So this idea, if you think like life is supposed to be just light and fun and easy, and there's never going to be the hearts, right? Like that, I think, you know, that expectation of it should just be this way versus this is what life is looking like right now. And I trust, and no, that's why I said when I knew with my husband, I was like, I know that we can face hard things together.
0: I'll go in a foxhole with him.
1: Yes. And that to me is one of the most important is not there will not be hard things or we have to avoid hard things. It's that when the hard things present, I know and trust that we will move through them together. There's a lot that can end relationships, right? Um, And probably don't have enough time to get into, you know, all the different (laughs) things
0: that could happen there. Just to spend a moment, you know, I I think communication is is a big one, and having talked to a lot of experts, like communication can erode quickly, you know, an, an example, and I, I'll give an example, you know, I, I think years ago, you heard, you, I would hear the, the, you know, the cliche advice, you know, ne- never go to bed angry. And I, and that's like terrible advice, because if you're having conflict with your partner,
1: you're not going to bed, <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, do we really want to escalate this and go to three in the morning or four in the morning or or when emotions are running high, like continue for them to to run high? It's like no, go to bed angry, wake up, and in my personal experience, you always wake up in a much better space, clearer head, and like kind of resolves. And oh, that was that was fucking that was silly. My take is a lot. It's never really the big thing that you know. Maybe the movies. It's the little stuff. Yeah.
1: Relationship killer, resentment. And how do we get to resentment? Right? Oftentimes, a lack of communication, a lack of addressing some of the smaller, hard things that are presenting, um, a lack of gratitude, appreciation, acknowledgement in the relationship. Resentment's a killer. It's awful. It's terrible.
0: How do we watch out for that?
1: Well, I think part of communication, you know, this, there is um, a term, low negativity threshold. I don't know if you've heard it before.
0: No, I haven't. LNT. Yeah,
1: right. Uh, And this idea. Sometimes people like you know, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Don't you know? We only we pick and choose our battles, and really, what we see is that um, those whose threshold is lower, meaning I, the amount of negativity that I am willing to tolerate before I say something about it, is really low. Okay. Very helpful. And that's not like, oh, let's nag and you know, be irritated and annoyed. I don't like the blue shirt that you have on. I think you should have chosen a different blue. Right. Um, it's right, like when something is upsetting to me, I don't hold it. I don't let it store in my body. I I share it. And we don't have to make a huge to-do about it, but we are able to express it and name it and have it essentially be resolved in that moment. And when we have partners who can say, Oh yeah, okay, I hear that. Sorry. I really didn't, I didn't mean for that to come out that way or, um, yeah, I totally get why you experienced that way. I'm sorry. And a kiss on the forehead and we move on from it, right? It's like, that's, you're right. It's not, sometimes the big stuff can be a significant rupture in the relationship, but most of the time, right? It's these little things, these little digs, these little strips that happen repeatedly over time that get us to a place of resentment and disconnection. And sometimes we cross a threshold where we are so resentful and so disconnected that it is so hard to try to come back from that. And so this idea of bringing down your threshold from for what you're willing to tolerate, yeah, you don't need to you know pound your chest and be proud. I can tolerate so much is not something to be excited about. Don't walk around like that, right? And for many of us, we had to learn how to tolerate a lot in our lives, right? In order to survive, in order to get through something, right? So for people who have historically had to tolerate a lot in order to get by, you really want to look out for this. But this idea of shifting, especially in our interpersonal relationships, to a place where we are not tolerating much, right? That's not meaning invitation for like blowout conflicts, right? But just a, okay, I need to share this with you. Oh, I hear you. Yeah, let's move it along, right? Like I acknowledge, yes, yes, yes. And then we go. Like that is so, so, so important to help us to stay away from resentment and disconnection.
0: Sound advice. And you can very easily see how that can build over time and then lead to explosion. Yeah. And so what what do you make, you know, I've seen this happen to, to people I know where, All of a sudden, it's, you know, we're getting separated or we're getting divorced. You know, we grew apart. We're friends, but, you know, we just grew apart. What do you, and again, hard to generalize, but what's your take on the we grew apart scenario?
1: Yeah, you know, a, a few things, right? Like it, the growing apart sometimes is the micro things that happen over and over and over again for a long period of time. I think a lot of times I'll hear one person in the partnership who wants to keep growing, who wants to do introspective work, who wants to do healing work, and the other person doesn't want to do that. And so this idea of really growing apart is 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 legitimate, right? This like one person is growing and wanting to change things and evolve, and the other person sort of has the little horse blinders on and doesn't want to have those conversations or go there or explore that. And so sometimes we, you know, depending on when we meet, you know, we, we change as human beings, right? If you get together when you're 20 or you're 30, and then who you are at 50, 60, right? It's like, it's different.
0: Let's talk about that. How much does age play a role? I know there's statistics about this, but I want your view on success in a relationship
1: Mm -hmm. i think emotional maturity is you know the hope is that as we age although we know for certain that this is not correlated that you do not necessarily become wiser just because the number gets higher right so we know that that is not correlated and yet that's our goal right is our hope is um I would like to be considered an elder at some point. I would like to get to a place where there is a wisdom there that I embody, um, where there is just a continued evolution of my, you know, emotional maturity year in, year out. And so I think I point much more towards a sense of emotional maturity as opposed to necessarily an age, right, a number
0: uh, in a person. Are there questions? one could ask themselves to know if they're quote-unquote ready for the the real the real thing
1: (laughs) um yeah i think there's a lot of questions uh that we could probably ask ourselves and i think like who am i how well do I know myself? And I know those are big questions and, you know, we're not static individuals. We are ever changing, always evolving, always shifting, always moving. But I think there's something about like that sense of self. Do I know my story? Do I, have I resolved anything in my life? How am I still... Being driven by irresolution from the past yeah i, I forgot what I was listening to. I know it was a podcast, but I can't remember uh whose podcast it was and who the guest was but i remember them saying like you know if somebody's coming into the relationship and they're like and obviously this is dramatic but like i'm perfect you know there's like you're going to be scared of that person but if you if somebody's coming into the relationship and they're like here's what i struggle with you know here's this thing that i know about myself that i have challenges with and I'm working on it. Like that's someone that we probably trust more than the person who says, I'm perfect. I'm great. There's nothing that I do that is, you know, right. And so there's like a need for this self-understanding and I think an interest and curiosity in the understanding of, you know, the person that we're going to partner with as well. Like I want to get to know your inner world and I want to know my inner world
0: self awareness is like paramount i think with everything
1: it's paramount and i you know maybe it feels overused at this point but the reality of it is is that like it's it's vital for us to be able to move through relationships well you know, it's like your wisdom, your, your emotional maturity can only come from you facing the parts of yourself that you don't like, the parts of yourself that have been troubling in the past, right? It's like, where do we gain our emotional maturity from? By going through the fire. Where do we gain our wisdom from? By going through the fire. You don't get to have that just because you went from 20 to 40 or 60, right? You've got to face stuff. Right so what have you faced
0: so other than buying the book which I will hold up everyone should buy the origins of you and taking your quiz which we will link to in the show notes what are some of the things that listeners can do right now to start becoming better people happier in their own skin better in their relationships better human beings all around what what can we do to start to to work to do the work
1: I think one uh, one great question is where in my life am I most reactive? So sometimes we have to look in the corners that are a little bit trickier and harder for us. So instead of like, I'm just going to express more gratitude moving forward, which is a nice thing. I, I think part of that inquiry is oof, like, where are there some tricky things in my life? And I think reactivity is, uh, I consider it the neon sign, the arrow that points us to irresolution. Where we are reactive, with whom we are reactive, right, is going to point us to something that, that activates us and lets us know that something internally is going on for us that needs our attention. So I'd encourage everybody right now to think about where it is you're most reactive in your life and with whom. And what do you know about that? and what's familiar about that, right? And when I say familiar, right, it doesn't need to be like exact, exact. It's just the sensation, right? What is familiar? Where have I experienced this before? What do I know about this? Right? What, is it that I don't feel prioritized in these moments? Is it that I don't feel good enough in these moments? Is it that I don't feel like I can trust in these moments, right? To really look for that. So look for your reactivity, okay? Look for where you can give advice, but not take it yourself. (laughs) Right. Always so good at that, right? It's like, where can you give advice, but you cannot implement it yourself. It's another really good indicator for your resolution around wounds. Um, you know, blowing things out of proportion, kind of similar to reactivity, but where it's like it doesn't kind of match what's happening. Reminder that you and your behavior makes sense with context. So if it doesn't match in the moment, it matches to some moment, even if it's not the one that just presented, right? Um, And yeah, I, you know, one of the questions that a therapist once asked me that I continue to ask, you know, clients of mine to this day, right, is like, what did you need most as a kiddo and not get? And, you know, instead of brushing right by that question to just really sit into it, to sink into it, to give yourself a moment with it, to really identify and acknowledge. And again, this isn't going on a hunt. And, you know, I I say in the book, like, I really respect and honor, you know, parents and adults. We're not here to throw anybody under the bus. We're not here to, you know, just point blame and, you know, any of that.
0: Don't want to call. Hey, dad, I've got a problem with you.
1: <laughs> that's not what this is about. But it is also very important for us to acknowledge when there's something that we needed and we didn't get. And to when we can name that, we can sometimes see where that pattern plays out, where am I still seeking that? Where am I maybe still not getting that today in my relationships? And yeah, that's a very important question that I think that we can answer right now in this moment too.
0: Fantastic advice. We we covered a lot today. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you would like to touch on or any words of wisdom you'd like to leave with our audience?
1: Oh, we did touch on a lot. And, you know, there's so much more we could obviously dive into. But I think, you know, there's, um, there's an exercise at the end of the book, um, Unfortunately, it's not my exercise. You know, people who are like, "I wish I had written that song or I wish I'd made that movie." I'm like, I wish I came up with this exercise. But uh, Michael Kerr, psychotherapist, um, he says to think of your mother as your grandmother's daughter and see how that changes your perspective. and i I love that invitation because, again, I will always remind people that context is not an excuse. We're never looking to make excuses for people. But to remember that, our parents and our partners and our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues and our bosses and whomever, right? That everybody was a tiny human in a family system at one point. And they went through complicated, challenging things. And we're not here to compare whose story is worse and whose story is better. But that, yeah, life is a challenge sometimes. And there's ruptures and you know moments in there that we often know very little about. And so when we can remember that each of us was a tiny human in this complicated system at some point before, then I think... There is a shift that can sometimes take place. Again, that doesn't mean that we give the excuse and say, "Oh, okay, well, something hard happened for you, so I understand why you did this thing to me, But it does help us make access with compassion and grace, I think, for the humans around us. I think sometimes we can say, see our partners, you know, as tiny humans, right, as opposed to the person who's right in front of me sometimes. you know it's like <clears throat> that can shift something for us too. And so I love that exercise and I invite people to sort of remember that or to even consider like, how does the perspective shift when you think about someone you care about or, or someone you maybe are far away from even right now, but you remember them as this tiny human. So I leave you with that and I leave you with, you know, what I, I had said this before, but I'll kind of nail it back in. Patterns, our unwanted patterns, are pain's way of grabbing for our attention. I said it before pain is not out to get us, it's not out to destroy us, it's not out to ruin our lives. Pain just wants to be acknowledged, it just wants to be honored. It would like for us to just turn our heads back around for a moment, right? To be with it, to witness it, to grieve alongside of it so that we can actually make a pivot in our lives and move in the direction of the relationships and you know, the life that we really want to live. And so I really invite people on you know this journey to look at the pain and to acknowledge it and to learn how to touch it in a way that. That is safe, that is workable, but allows us to be with it and get intimate with it in the way that it needs us to so that we can, you know, trailblaze forward in the way that we would like.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Vienna. Thanks for having me.